Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. Today I'm in the studio with Suzanne Sexty. Suzanne has been researching the General Protestant Cemetery and the people buried there since her retirement in 2001. She first moved to Newfoundland in 1968 to work at the Henrietta Harvey Library at Memorial University and has worked at different libraries in the province and the United States. She has also recently co-authored a book titled Long Overdue, S.S. Beverly, 1885-1918, to about a mercantile ship and her crew lost during the First World War. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I feel it's uh, this. I'm, I've been looking forward to this, having a chat with you. I, we've been talking, uh, gosh, I think for about a year about going for a walk down in the General Protestant Cemetery, yeah. and we just haven't got around to it yet. But yeah, it's a small, it's a small place, but you know, busy lives. <laughs> busy lives, indeed. Yeah, and lives they are. Yeah. So now, tell me, how, how did you start to get interested in the General Protestant Cemetery? Well, we live not too far from it, and when our family was growing up, I used to go down there and take our friend, our son and his friends into the cemetery, because it's a gorgeous cemetery. It is. But I knew nothing about it, and most particularly, I'm not from here, so the term general Protestant was quite strange to me. I'd never heard of specific Protestants, let alone general, <laughs> general Protestants. Yes, okay. Okay, so I had to get started. That was probably the first thing that interests me. It has a lovely sign, a wrought iron sign over the entrance. It yeah. says General Protestant Cemetery. But also, as I looked at the names um, and as I learned more about it, I realized that this is a part of St. John's that we don't know as much about. There are a lot been written about the Roman Catholics, the Anglicans, but not the general Protestants as much, except as individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no so collective history. The dissenting church is about the closest thing, which talks about the Congregationalists, who are only one of the um, general Protestants. So the whole thing, and then I said, well, how did these people's lives intersect with mine? Uh, I don't know that much, didn't know that much about Newfoundland at the time when I first came here. And over the years, I've Loved the place as a place, and have, uh, not having any family, I decided, well, they'd be my family. And this is the way that I can give back to Newfoundland for the many, the 50-odd years I've had of complete enjoyment living here and mm-hmm. learning more about this place that I now call home. I was, I was talking to someone at one point about this cemetery when I started doing some research down there and said, I, I feel like I suddenly have 12,000 new friends. <laughs> because <laughs> And they are very friendly. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They're easy to get along with. Yeah. It's nice to research people in a cemetery. They never give you any talk back. <laughs> you know? Very true. Um, so for people who aren't maybe familiar with the cemetery itself, can you, de- can you describe it a little bit? Well, it's a wooded area, if you will, because it's become quite well grown over. If you look at it back in the 18, it was first opened in 1849 and was closed around in the 1840s, 1940s rather, I'm sorry. But there's an old picture looking down from the south side on it in the 1880s probably, and there's hardly a tree in it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of uh, trees have been planted there, and it's, it's in the Victorian style of a cemetery, a cemetery as a garden or as a park, as a place to visit. Yeah. Whether or not you have family there, it's always a place to visit. And certainly the General Protestant Cemetery is highly visited because of people getting off the bus on Waterford Bridge Road <laughs> yeah. and coming up. And many is the story about the uh, 
the groundkeeper's son having to escort people up through the cemetery at night because they couldn't take the the, the walk. But no, it's just a beautiful, quiet cemetery. It is now basically closed to uh, burials except for families who have plots there still. It's not a very pretentious cemetery in as much as the headstones in it. There are one or two exceptions, but most of the headstones are pretty modest, which probably bespeaks its general Protestant mm. between Methodists and Congregationalists and Presbyterians. Those good you don't think of Methodists you know, and Presbyterians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are some lovely angels down there, but they're the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. And so you must you must remember uh, the cemetery when it still had its fencing uh, oh, on yes. either side. Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, many a car also found that fencing. Ah. And eventually it just couldn't put it up. I remember also when there was the ground the uh, groundskeeper's house yep. was still on the cemetery lot. And that's up close to where the uh, the entrance sign is. It's just there, to just... the east of where the entrance sign is. There's an empty spot there that they now kind of use to park and stuff like that. Yeah. And it has a hedge around it. So they were some, there was some delineation between the groundkeeper's house and the uh, cemetery itself. Yeah. And that, that came down in the 80s or so? I w- I'm going to say that. Uh, we moved into that area in 74. So it was still there then and yeah. probably into the 80s, yeah. So now the the cemetery opened up in 1849, uh, and there was, uh, I guess, a a piece of legislation, a a law passed at that point where where burials were not going to be permitted in the downtown core. In 1849, the then uh, governor, Lamarchant, decreed that all cemeteries within the city limits would be closed and there would be no further burials. This is a result of fear of disease spreading in a small populated area like that. There is a headstone in the General Protestant Cemetery that says the first burial was 1842. But as I've been researching this, it turns out that at one of its anniversaries, the 50th or something, an article was written about that, that it was 1842. Um, But there are two things that lead me to believe that that was not the actual date of the first burial, 49 was. Number one was they the general Protestants did not start to acquire land until 1848, 1849. Um, The other is that a follow-up letter, somebody who was alive at the time of the opening said, no, no, you've got it wrong. 1842 is actually the date that this person was buried somewhere else in the downtown. And that's quite possible because all of the general Protestants had their own individual cemeteries in the downtown area. And this person did indeed die in 1842 and quite probably was and then moved later Mm-hmm. out to the General Protestant Cemetery, but they moved the headstone also, which declared him to be the first. A Mr. So. A Mr. Butt, I think. A Mr. Butt, yeah, yeah. who was uh, yeah, buried by a, a Reverend Snow, Yeah, which is always one of my favorite. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, because there, were, there was a cemetery, uh, a small Methodist cemetery, a graveyard at the bottom of Long's Hill, and then a, yes. um, a Congregationalist cemetery kind of down closer to Queens Road Chapel Street yes. area. And so some of those yeah. graves were relocated. There was also a Presbyterian cemetery, which is now more or less where the parking lot is. For uh, The first Presbyterian church uh, is not there anymore. But when the first Masonic Hall was built, they asked for land next to the first Presbyterian church. And in that land, we know that... Um, <clears throat> the Donald Allen Fraser, who was the first Presbyterian minister, was buried next to the church. And in one of the, um, uh, something that appeared in a, a Presbyterian uh, 
periodical, it indicates that Fraser was moved at that time to make way for it. And he was indeed moved to the General Protestant Cemetery, but he died in 18, oh, around 1843 or something like mm. that. So that was before. So that would have been on Cathedral Street? Uh, that's on Longs Hill. On Longs Hill. Oh, okay. On Longs Hill, yeah. yeah. So okay. it's just, it's just, what's that, north of where the Presbyterian Church is now, where right. Kirk is. Okay. And then you're right, there was one down near the uh, uh, Gower Street, more or less where this, uh, where the, as far as I can tell from the old maps, Noah's map of 1840, whatever it is, has a cemetery there, uh, which is where the policeman statue now right. is, the constabulary, yeah. statue. constabulary statue. Yeah. And as for the Congregationalists, one of their deeds indicates that the Congregational Church, which is now the uh, those condominiums, was built on the site of a cemetery. Right. And there was probably another Congregational Cemetery down on um, Victoria Street which was at the time called uh, Meeting House Lane. Meeting House Lane, yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, so we They're have, all over the place. They, <laughs> there were lots of burials in various place. places, yeah. yeah. So now, uh, so 18, 1849, 1850s, um, this group of Protestants mm-hmm. kind of comes together to acquire land. And the land, some of it was owned by the Catholic Church. Is that yeah. true? Uh, not at that time. They, they acquired it in... One, two, three, four different sections. Yeah. And they were mainly trustees of one church or another who acquired it and then, I assume, turned it over to the church. Uh, as far as I can tell, there were two purchases which are in the easterly most part of the cemetery, abutting onto Leeside Manor in that area, okay, mm-hmm. which were at one time in the hands of uh, Reverend O'Donnell, the Roman Catholic bishop. When he left Newfoundland, he left with a... Um, a little pension, if you will, but also a grant of land in the West End, which became known as the Bishop's Plantation. Researching the deeds, what I did when I started to look at the cemetery to figure out how it, I, I always thought you buy a cemetery, you buy a piece of land, and that's it. Not in this case. So I started with the existing property lines and did a, a a deed search backwards, if you right. will. And this land in around 1940s, in the in 1940s, the O'Donnell collateral descendants uh, di- had, at, up to that point, had leasehold on the land. So at the, at, in, the eight, in the 1940s, when they were getting ready to close out the General Protestant Cemetery, the um, <clears throat> then corporation bought the, the land, bought the lease rights to the land. They'd already purchased the land, but they didn't actually have the lease rights. Hmm. So yeah, over, it had been acquired from uh, O'Donnell collateral descendants. Right. Yeah. Now, do you, do you have uh, favorite inhabitants? Oh, well, <laughs> funnily enough, there, yeah, there, whichever one I'm researching now, I've become <laughs> very passionately involved with almost the point of, oh, oh give it up, right. as my friends will say. <laughs> but there is one family, and it is the Mitchell family, and I like them because the earliest birth date is 1854, and the most current, if you will, death date is 1964. And on that headstone, there's a, a father, a mother, there are two sons, a daughter, and a daughter-in-law. So they span this fantastic amount of history for Newfoundland. They were, they were true Newfoundlanders. The mother, Anna, was a Barnes, and she was related to Richard Barnes, who was the founder of the Native Society. Uh, their son, John, um, Jack Mitchell, uh, he died uh, in the First World War, not with the regiment, 
which makes him really interesting mm-hmm. because his brother Harold, on the other hand, fought with the regiment, came back and founded the Great War Veterans Association. Uh, they, the, two, the Harold, married a distant cousin who's related through the Trimmingham, Templeton, she got to love Newfoundland, <laughs> yes. but he married her in Scotland where her family had moved to. Um, so anyway, she's quite a distant relative of his. She came back to Newfoundland with him, and they together, she was one of the founders of Nonia. Uh-huh. He was a very strong proponent of um, sustainable living in Newfoundland, so he was big into farms. He had a farm out at um, uh, Black Duck on the West Coast. And, and so they're just a fascinating family. And the father is one of the kind of South. He was a, a, a commission merchant. And one of the products that he brought in was the golden pheasant tea. Oh, interesting. And when you look at it, it's not there anymore, and that's the set. This is the part about working in the cemetery. It connects me to so many things that unfortunately are no longer with us. Yes. But he was, there used to be um, down on Water Street East at the foot of St. John's Lane, there was a really nice advertisement for Beautiful. the golden pheasant yeah. it was gorgeous Mural, it was yeah. restored in 2004 <laughs> and destroyed in 2010 yeah. or 11 something like that so they're a family that i like because they represent an interesting portion of history any one of the family would would make a con it would and there is no, no the family that line no longer exists hmm. so any one of them made some contribution to my life and to your life and to everybody who's now here today and the whole area of Barnes Road for instance is named after Anna's family because they owned a vast amount of property there another favorite though is is William Frederick Butler who was an architect yes not known like the South Cots but we know his homes and we know his businesses and we walk past them almost half a circular road mm-hmm. our butler the queen anne style yeah. winter home winter home uh, winter yeah. home is an example but one of the best examples probably and an example of the evolution of saint john's is i'm not going to tell you what it is now but it's on water street and it's just past prescott and it's on the south side it started out as the commercial cable building became the javelin building a lot of history there. And then it became the T.J. Murphy. Mm-hmm. And now it's Raymond's. Raymond's Restaurant, yeah. That's such a wonderful example, not only of the architecture of the time, but how a building can be repurposed if people are thoughtful, considerate, and have any connection. It could have been torn down at any point, but instead Raymond's has turned it into a, a place which speaks both to its past and its, its present. Mm-hmm. And the Delgato building is another one on Water Street. His buildings, and, and one of the Delgato buildings that he designed was their family home. Which is now lost. Which is now lost yeah. because of a fire yeah. on Waterford, Waterford Bridge. It was the, the Pink Palace, the Pink Castle, as yes, they used to yeah. call it. But another one that's, you know, so I kind of get passionate about these guys because while they what they did was important then it's still important you know to remember it so where's where's william f butler where's his uh, oh he's his buried stone? in the general protestant cemetery yeah. because butler and his wife and their her brother-in-law their brother-in-law who was a macubri were all lost on the florizel oh yeah okay. mrs uh, the mrs in the family was the first body to be brought back to st john's huh 
So he was, and in, if you read uh, Winter's Tale, in it, Cassie Brown refers to Butler, who runs into one somebody who he firm, formerly knows, and he won't let the man carry his little valise. And the rumor has always been that he had $10,000 in that little valise, and that's why he wouldn't let anybody. And it went, and she writes in the, about how it was washed over overboard. So if you're diving around the cap, hey, hey <laughs> Mary, you might want to check for yeah. it. <laughs> Very wet dollars, because the, but, the, um, the butlers traveled back and forth to the United States quite, quite regularly out to California, where they often summered, and he checked out the architecture of the area. Yeah. It is interesting, as you say, how how interrelated some of those the early St. John's families are. You, you mentioned the Trimminghams. Yes. Like that's a, I, that is a name that I've only become aware of fairly recently. They were a, a merchant family. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain that there are any Trimminghams really uh, still around today. I came across the name because I was doing some research on... Um, uh, I, I found a, a newspaper reference which led me down this great rabbit hole mm. of research about a Kate Mullins, she was, yes. who was yes. a Trimmingham. Well, that's yeah. a connection. Now, you'll get a connection there to J.B. Mitchell because he's on the deed of Kate uh, Milligan Trimmingham, yep. uh, and he is the agent for Goodrich's down uh, in Renews okay. at the time yep. that she was... Uh, I can't remember if she was buying, selling, or somehow. There, anyway, her name appears on a deed with Mitchells. With And when the Mitchells moved, one thing I have to do when I'm looking at these families, I'm not doing genealogical research per se, but I have to know who they are and what they did laterally, you know, as I'm looking at the sides of their lives. And at one point, after the fire of 1892 and the uh, bank crash of 94, Mitchell, who was an agent for Goodrich at the time, probably found himself in a rather untenable position financially. So they moved to Chicago. And if you look at the Chicago 1900 census, you will find the Duders, the Carnells, the Trimminghams. One Trimmingham in particular had been there for quite a while. It was very well established in Oak Park Lawn. Uh, Oak Lawn, Oak Park, the rich section of Chicago. Anyway, but there were also Barneses there because Anna's brother had moved down there after uh, before 94 actually and so you get all of this uh, Newfoundlanders who went away many of whom came back after the financial economic situation settled down in St. John's but for the, the Duder that's down there came back later on uh, the Trimmingham's never did but I think the Carnells but you get all of this yes they're connected but they're also connected on a broader sense because we always I've always heard, anyway, that people married within their denominational groupings. This is not as much the point as I think they married within their social groupings. Yeah. There's, uh, there's an awful lot of over, overlapping of churches, and the common denominator seems to be the mercantile class. It's interesting you mentioned that. We were talking about Kate uh, Trimmingham Mullins, uh, who, who married a Roman Catholic, Okay. And is buried up at Belvedere Cemetery, and and her she actually kind of has a, a bit of a tragic story. Um, she went quite mad uh, and tried to burn her house down several times, and eventually died at what was then called the Lunatic Asylum, yeah. um, and was finally buried beside her her husband in in uh, Belvedere oh, Cemetery. In Belvedere, yeah. yeah. Well, there are families who are divided, though. Mm. When I did the Frews, for instance, one of the Frews was married to a. Um, a Parker, 
Parker of Leaside Manor. Yep. That's the fruit. She is in the General Protestant Cemetery. He is in Belvedere. Right. So there was, and I've had people ask me, can you tell me anything about, we can't find Uncle So-and-so. We've gone through all of the Roman Catholic records. And I said, well, you know, living to me because I don't think that way. So I check everybody else's records. And sure enough, he's the one outlier who went into the Presbyterian or something, you know. Uh, They married women who... Sometimes the women changed their church. Sometimes the men changed them. Yeah. Uh, but at death, sometimes the family decided where they were going to go. So, so what are you doing research on now? Is there someone in particular Ooh. that you're looking up? Well, there's one. And if, if, if anybody's listening, <laughs> I'm doing one on an impounder now. Uh, in a minute. Uh, I had given a talk about the cemetery. And somebody came up to me afterwards and told me about a, a grandfather, I think it was, who was a desert, D-E-S-S-E-R-T, the desert, a desert or something. And he was a city impounder. And they said they'd get in touch with me later, and but they never did. So if you're out there, you can still get in touch with me. <laughs> but I started to look at what was an impounder. And it was the poor guy who had to go around collecting the stray animals. Now, he got a nice uniform and a fairly good salary, I think, but he also got every woman in town chasing him when he took their goats. Because <laughs> everybody had goats, and they were for milk. Yes. You know? And as St. John's was expanding in the 1880s, it was going up into the Barrens and up into La Marchant Road in that area, and the people there were still living as if they were in the country. They had their gardens. The goats ate the cabbages, but the goats provided milk, so the impounder was caught between the two. So I'm doing that on the impounder and also on one of uh, Reverend Harvey's sons, who was Charles, who was one of the, the first city engineer okay. and who died tragically. He committed suicide. What, what was the, the impounder's name? Well, it, it shows up variously, but one spelling is D-E-S-S-E-R-T. Yeah. And I'd say desert, desert. I've come across another impounder uh, by the name of uh, Lestrange or Lestrange, who was okay. who was uh, also a city impounder and was. I think they had with, a few at the time because yeah. whenever I'm looking through the records, I keep coming up. I, this is one thing I have to go to city council records and see what they called him. You know, yeah. because sometimes they'll say the city impounder, not a city impounder, right. and they tend to say so. They I sense that they had a lot of them, and yeah. that this particular one was, um, the family still had, uh, they, he had a harness or a, a yoke that he would put on the goats yes. when he got them so they couldn't stick their head through anything and get <laughs> away from him. So, so uh, they still had that yoke, which made it even more interesting. Oh, amazing, yeah. I try one of two things. Either I write about somebody who I can affirm has no living descendant, because that can be a little dicey. Or if I write something about someone with a living descendant, I try and make sure that they at least read what I'm going to write. Because family histories, and my history, which is written purely from paper, 99% of it is paper, a newspaper, deeds, whatever, census reports, all of which are, tend to inaccuracies. Hmm. But so do family histories. Hmm. And so, you know, somewhere between the two, the, the recollections of the family and what I find on paper, somewhere between those two lies the truth. 
Now, are you are you going to put all this into a book? Th- that's my objective. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, but I'd love to read no, it. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I'd love to see it published. I've been a year trying to get this other book. Yes. Out of the publication stage, yeah. so you know, um, it takes time. I have the stories. I've written a number for the Newfoundland Quarterly, yes. which you can find them. Yeah. I've given a number of talks, but every time you touch one of these things, you start almost over again. Yeah, you know I find you, you start, and then as I was saying, you just go down these rabbit holes that gonna yeah. open up more and more stories. Yeah. yeah, because I concentrate on one area, and really. The people there before 1940, um, they have um, they have a lot of connectivity, as you say, and that makes it easier and harder because I can go off rabbit holes, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> there may be no rabbits in Newfoundland, but there are a lot of holes, yeah. And and you just or I'll I'll be doing one person and I'll find or somebody will get in touch with me and they say, do you know my uncle? He made doesn't you know did such and such, which sounds like an important part of our history that we know. That's how I got into the trunks. Somebody said my husband's family were trunk makers on Trunk Lane in St. John's. And Trunk Lane's still there off of Cabot Street. Hmm. But the family, who are Belbins, but not the not grocery the Belbins, Belbins yeah. not the other Belbins, yes, uh, made trunks until the 1970s. And his trunks, somebody out there listening to this has a Belbin trunk. They probably, if they went off anywhere onto the island or if they traveled, trunks were important. And they'd started building them shortly after the First World War. So the family history, you know. So, yeah, my little rabbit holes. But, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I yeah, feel like you're a, you're a kindred I, spirit. Uh. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we are, so we could probably go on like this forever and ever. Yeah, and we're, no. we're, we're, uh, these interviews go so quickly. We're already coming up uh, kind of towards the, the end. We're, you're going to have to come back, and we're going to have to have a longer chat because we oh. haven't even talked about your book research, your, your current book research. Um, if someone is going to go down and explore the General Protestant Cemetery, uh, is there a stone or a monument that you would point them towards, a place to start? Well, the, the, the main gate, unfortunately, is not the best place to start. I think that if you probably go down, go to the, um, if you go to the, I'm trying to think now, east and work your way west, you'll get a fairly good view. The, the cemetery, it's not orderly, and that's part <laughs> of the reason I like it. Yeah. I don't like straight lines. Uh, so you wander. Just wander through it and pick a name. You'll see the names of so many city streets, buildings, and just and you know pick on one of them. They're not going to say a lot to you, but you're going to hear the past in, in, in some sense. You'll find some strange things like why is there a Dutch sailor buried down there? You know, that you have to find out for yourself. Or, yeah. or you could read my article, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or a British seaman. No, I think that, to me, the best part is just going through, looking at the family names, seeing it. You'll see the herders down there. Yes. You'll see the Brownings, Browning Harvey. Uh, you will see all sorts of names that you'll say, oh, I yeah. I know that name. Anna Templeton is down uh, there. The Templeton, and, yeah. the Cowans are down there. So. Cowan Heights. Yes. But one of the Cowans fought in the Civil War. That's uh, one of my favorite stories from down there. So He's the Cowan. He's the Cowan, yeah. Well, I know all about him now, and I even know what regiment. I finally, after 10 years of research... <laughs> we are, we're going to have to do a part two. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> anyway. other one, that the other stone that I find quite fascinating, up up kind of the top, what is it, the north yeah. mm, west corner, I guess, is there's a table tomb 
um, the wife of Charles Node, the yes. uh, the, yep. uh, the surveyor, his mm-hmm. wife, who was a lily, is, is yep. buried there. And, and I think it's the only table tomb that exists. In it, the, I'm not even sure it's a table anymore. It's kind of kind more of, of down a rug now. Corner, yeah. 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 Uh, yes, because he left here, but she died here. Yeah. He left after she died. And he, he was quite prominent, and I, and I have read that he kind of died in poverty in Ontario. Yeah, he left here. I haven't looked too much at him because he's not in the General Protestant <laughs> Cemetery. Yeah. His wife is. Because I think he left. There was a change of government. Change there of government, was some yeah. controversy about his. He was a surveyor general. Yeah, yeah. And it goes on and on like that. And when he left here, he never did as well as he did here. That well, would be one way to put it. You will have to come back. I would love to come back. This has been most <laughs> enjoyable. I love talking about the cemetery. Me too. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.